Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Dr. Frankie and welcome to Vision of Health, the podcast where I talk to qualified experts about what being healthy really looks like. Through our conversations, we'll bridge the gap between the scientific evidence base and you, the everyday person who just wants to live a healthier lifestyle. I am very much on a mission to provide evidence-based educational content and practical tips that you can actually implement in your everyday lives. Our wonderful sponsors, FemFresh, who have supported me for a number of years now, share the same vision, to open up conversations on taboo subjects, to bust the health myths and improve women's health. FemFresh are not only industry leaders in women's intimate hygiene products, but also committed on educating on all things women's health. And this podcast just wouldn't be possible without their support. You can also catch on socials at FemFresh underscore UK and on their website, FemFresh.co.uk. I'm Dr. Frankie, and this is my vision of health. One of my biggest missions, both on social media and through this podcast, is to open up conversations about women's health. And unfortunately, many aspects of women's health are still a taboo subject. And I couldn't think of a better guest to talk to me about this today than Dr. Philippa Kay, practicing GP, TV medic, best-selling author. She's here to set the facts straight on all things women's health. Dr. Philippa studied medicine at Cambridge University before completing her clinical training at Guy's and St. Thomas's Medical School. She is a practicing GP with over 14 years experience. And you might recognize her from daytime TV show This Morning, where she's the resident doctor talking about all things women's health. She's also a journalist and author of best-selling books, The M Word, which is all about menopause, and Breasts and Owner's Guide. And as if she doesn't already have enough on a plate, she's also a mother of three. Philippa, you wear so many hats. <laughs> thank you for making the time to talk to me today. Thank you for having me. How are you? Good. Thank you for being here. So we'll jump straight into it. When I say the term women's health, I think many listeners are going to assume we mean reproductive health or periods. But actually, women's health goes far beyond that. 
What does the term women's health mean to you? So I don't think that there should be a term women's health and men's health because there's just health. And your hormones might affect that health, but there's just health. Now, women's health, and often people do think about it as reproductive health, but actually women's health is really unique amongst medicine because a lot of the time it's not that women are unwell. So they're not unwell when they're trying to get pregnant. They're not unwell when they're pregnant. They're not unwell when they're postmenopausal. They're not unwell when they're seeking contraception. They're just trying to find a way of managing being a woman. Mm. And that's quite different to I've got pneumonia. Can you please treat that? And so I think it's unique in that way. But I think that the world is only just beginning to realize that women's health is not just about your womb because the amount of research that's done into what it is to be a woman with heart disease or cancer or whatever else it may be is only just beginning to scrape the tip of the iceberg. So there's a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, I work in clinical trials and it fascinates me that up until 1993, women were excluded. excluded from clinical trials. And it's our entire health systems are kind of mini versions of men. Mm -hmm. And actually, in many ways, we're physiologically different. What was said was that our hormones in the menstrual cycle make us complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I'm certainly complicated. <laughs> but complicated isn't bad. It's just good. Let's deal with that. Yeah. And, you know, and even drug doses were set on a 70 kilo man. Mm. That's not what the average woman is. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot more space to be done. When I was in medical school, we did not learn how a heart attack would present in a woman. Yeah. So we didn't learn the anatomy of a clitoris. You know, there's just so much out there yeah. that is still unknown. I didn't even learn that a gender health gap existed until yeah. I started practicing. You know, we're starting up the conversations, but there's still a but lot of But I think that we're done. at the part, so often people who are campaigners, be it menopause campaigners or whatever they are, get that there's this idea that we've been shouting and talking for a long time mm. and why aren't we move further on? But actually, we are at the very beginning, which is raising awareness so the research gets done. And the guidelines will only change once the research is done. And the research is only done once we know that there's a need for the research. And that is where we are. Yeah, super interesting. Watch this space. Why do you think many aspects of women's health are still a taboo subject? I always think about even when I'm talking on social media, so many of the population don't even use the correct anatomical terms for our genitals. Why do you think that many things are a taboo subject? I think that women's health is really tightly bound up with where women's places were meant to be and are meant to be in some cultures, in society and culture historically. Mm. And if we have been valued on our ability to bear children and what we look like, which is what we have been valued on. And the purity point until you get there, which all of which is a social construct and virginity being a social construct and not medical, that actually until we can separate that bit, it will all remain a taboo. Mm. Because the whole idea that you're dirty or smelly or that period blood makes you unclean in some way is all bound up in that as opposed to in the health bit. Mm. And so until we begin to tease that bit away from each other, it is still shrouded in shame and stigma. Plus the fact that women's genitals are quite literally hidden. In the male changing rooms or the male urinal, men see each other mm. and women don't. Women don't even look at themselves. If you can't even bring yourself to look at yourself, why would you name it? And if you can't name it, why would you look after it? Never mind get pleasure from it. So, you know, it's another example, long way to go. But that shame, 
stigma, taboo and silence actively harms women. Mm. I remember being at school and you'd come on your period and it would be the most stressful thing because you didn't know how to tell the teacher that you needed to go to the bathroom. Back then, I wouldn't have just said, oh, I've come on my period, please can I go to the bathroom? It would be this really stressful thing. And mm -hmm. I really hope that that changes for future. So I think that there's, I think that it would be nice to think that it is changing, but I think that there is still an awful lot of period shame out there. And you know, in that it would still be incredibly brave to be a 13 year old putting your hand up saying, and there are some schools, you know, doctors are very against this, but there are some schools where you're not allowed to go to the toilet in the middle of the class. Mm -hmm. And I always say, well, what happens if you're a girl that's, you know, flooding yeah. with periods? And we know that girls don't go to school when they have their periods, that period poverty is not solely about the loss of income that you have when you're paying for products, but it's also about the loss of time at school and the loss of time at work if your periods are so heavy or so painful or whatever it is that might may be, and that there's a real, real impact there. Yeah, well, on the topic of periods, a really trendy topic at the moment is menstrual cycle tracking, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So I'm sorry. There isn't the evidence. If we'd say the word menstrual tracking, to me, that means when I ask you what was the first day of your last menstrual period, that you know the answer. And bearing in mind, that's a question that we as doctors ask a lot of the time. And lots of women go, I'm sorry, what? But that's something that we use to track your menstrual cycle. If I would say to someone, you know, it might be a good idea to track your cycles. What I mean by that is... When are they coming? How often are they coming? Are they regular? Are they irregular? Are you bleeding in between your periods? That always needs to be checked out by a doctor. That kind of thing. Or how heavy they are or how long they last. But what sort of meant on social media at the moment is menstrual tracking and then trying to sync your diet and your training around that. And the evidence is not there yet to suggest that you would definitely gain muscle better at this point or need to eat something else at that point. That is not to say that it might not be at some point, because as we just said, there isn't enough research. But right now, there isn't the evidence to say, definitely go buy this product and it will definitely ensure that you get X gains at the gym and that your weight is X, Y, Z. There isn't the evidence to say that. However, knowing your normal is absolutely key. Only if you know your normal will you know your abnormal. And that means if we could just take away some of those sort of publicity things that says, you know, if you menstrual track, you will do X. If we could just say, if you menstrual track, you'll know your body. Mm. And therefore you might be kinder to yourself in the week leading up to your period if you feel tired or if you feel emotional, that you might recognize the times that you have more energy to do something. That I can definitely get behind. But the big sort of claims that it will solve all issues I'm not so sure about yet. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you there. I think one thing I love about it is people focusing less on the actual bleed and actually getting more in tune with how hormonal fluctuations may make them feel because we give ourselves slack over our actual menstrual bleed and might think, oh, I'm on my period, I can skip the gym or I can let myself eat the chocolate. But actually the hormonal fluctuations throughout the cycle could make you feel equally as terrible. And it kind of lets people be more in tune with that. I think that we're really kind to teenagers, actually. 
and we say teenagers are grumpy mm. or teenagers need more sleep, but we're not kind to women mm. because we expect women to go to work with terrible period pain. You don't have to put up with terrible period pain. There are things that we can do about it. But we expect people to just sort of carry on living their daily lives irrespective of whether they're having a miscarriage or whether they have got terrible periods or whether they've got pelvic pain from endometriosis or whether they're struggling with menopausal symptoms. So I actually think that there's we definitely need to be a lot kinder to women, but that often starts with knowing yourself. Mm. Oh, I absolutely love that. I think it would be really good actually with on the topic of periods, so we'll stay on that, but let's in this conversation cover each period of a woman's life where we may need to be kinder to ourselves and have a bit more knowledge about what's going on. I had a conversation with someone who, someone else's podcast, I was a guest on it, and they were telling me that you know, when they were a teenager, they had the most painful periods that it was physically disabling. And it took her years to get to a diagnosis. And I think, like you just said, there's many women and young girls out there that are suffering with painful periods. And they think they just need to get on with life. Mm. What is normal when it comes to our periods? And what do we need to know? So the first Part of that is the gender pain gap is very real. Women's pain is taken less seriously. Women are less likely to be offered pain-killing drugs. There seem to be sort of certain aspects of being a woman where pain is accepted. So if you fall over and you break your leg, everyone's going to say that hurts. But if your period hurts or if childbirth hurts, there is this idea that that's something to just be put up with. And there was a hospital recently that was telling women to hold a comb through their contractions. In the latest set of guidance, it says about injecting sterile water into women's backs. The evidence for that is really weak, as opposed to saying you can have all of this kind of pain relief that that we do have. The point at which you go to the doctor for whatever your symptom is, is the point where it bothers you. And that is going to be different for everybody. So some people will say, I have really heavy periods, but I manage them and that's okay. Then that's okay. If you're not getting anemic and if you're not floored by pain and if you're not exhausted, then fine. So you don't have to go to the doctor. But if you are struggling, be that with heavy periods or painful periods or both or pelvic pain or your periods aren't coming as often as you might think, then you know it's time to go and see the doctor. People often think, if my period is not 28 days, then it must be irregular. So the range of normal is around 21 days to 35 days as a cycle. So you might get your period every three weeks or every five weeks. And so if you say to me, well, one month it's 28 and one month it's 30 and the next month it's 26, that's normal. That's within the bounds of normal. But if you're somebody that normally has periods every 32 days, and then they start coming every three months or every four months. That's a real change and we need to know about it. If you're not on a form of contraception that affects your bleeds, then you need to be bleeding at least three or four times a year. But if you aren't your version of regular, then we want to know about it. And if you're bleeding sort of much less than that, then we want to know about it too. And if your pain is affecting your ability to function despite taking over-the-counter painkillers, we want to know about it. If you're bleeding so much that you're scared to leave the toilet, that you're wearing three pads, that you're wearing a tampon, a pad, and then sort of stacking the pad at the back, we want to know about it because you don't need to be in that position. Mm. And I think something we touched on there about the painful periods, endometriosis is very topical. And I read that it takes a woman on average eight years to get to a diagnosis of endometriosis. As a GP, why do you think that is? I think it's a combination of things. One is To be a woman is to have pain, which is a sentence that I just can't bear, but there is some kind of acceptance in society about that. The second is that 
the gold standard of diagnosis of endometriosis is with a laparoscopy, which is a keyhole surgery. And I will do a lot of stuff before I get to that point because the treatment for endometriosis, and for people listening, endometriosis is when there is tissue which is similar to the lining of the womb outside of the womb, sometimes on the outside of the womb, the ovaries, the bladder, the bowel, it can actually be anywhere else. And that tissue responds to the hormones of the menstrual cycle. And so it wants to be shed and bled every month, but it can't be shed and bled out of the vagina because where it is, it's not connected. So it then bleeds into the pelvis often, and that causes inflammation and then scarring. And that can lead to all kinds of symptoms that don't show up on a scan. So an ultrasound scan, unless you have something called an endometrioma, which is a chocolate cyst, it's not going to show me. Even MRI scans, it might show some adhesions, some scar tissue, but not necessarily. And the amount of endometriosis lesions that you have doesn't correlate with your symptoms. So you might have a pelvis that's got loads of it and not have symptoms. You might have a pelvis that's got a small patch and have lots of symptoms. And so until someone actually looks with their eyes, you can't say definitely yes. But that doesn't mean that I can't treat it. And so we have treatments for endometriosis that include painkillers or something to make your periods lighter or hormonal forms of contraception or the coil or whatever. So we have a lot of treatments that we might use and we might say, I'm treating you as if, but not necessarily that you've got. Yeah. And I actually, that leads me on to something I get asked about a lot on social media, which is this whole issue of how hormonal contraception is portrayed Mm. on social media. Because like you just said, in certain situations like endometriosis, hormonal contraception can be a useful treatment for managing symptoms. But it often gets portrayed as a negative thing because it's like putting a plaster over the problem rather than solving the problem. What are your thoughts on hormonal contraception? Hormonal contraception at the moment seems to be getting a really bad rap. And I think that social media is really interesting about it. I think social media is an interesting place to exist as someone that sort of works in medicine, sort of trying to get out public health information, but also as a consumer because we're all consumers. Hormonal contraception will be discussed only for the negatives or only for the risks And everything in life, everything in medicine is a balance between your risks and your benefits. And we have to start by talking about the benefits. And hormonal contraception is all kinds of things from the combined pill to a hormonal coil. We've got lots of different kinds. And we use them for lots of different things. If you don't go to school, you don't go to work because your periods are so painful and I stop you having periods by saying, let's tailor take the pill and back to back the pill, then that can be life-changing for women. If you have painful periods, heavy periods, if you have bad PMS, if you have PMDD, premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, if you have acne, if you have migraines that are related to PMS. You know, I use contraception for all all those things that I just said weren't about preventing pregnancy. So we use it for all kinds of things that aren't solely preventing pregnancy. Pregnancy itself is not a risk-free state. Pregnancy itself, so people, for example, they talk about the risk of blood clots on the combined contraceptive pill. The risk of blood clots is there when you get pregnant. It increases when you get pregnant. It increases after delivery. So pregnancy itself is not a risk-free state, both physically and psychologically. And so it's really important that you put all of that on the benefits side before you talk about the risks. 
which are there for every medicine. And there are potential side effects and potential risks for every medicine. And it is an individual discussion between you and your healthcare professional taking into consideration your history and your family history to see what those balances are for you to decide. That there is no medicine which is all out evil and there's no medicine which is all out good. And the same is true of hormonal contraception. Yeah. I always think contraception's a bit like a restaurant review if you've had an all right time an all right meal you don't write anything about it the it's a really biased landscape because the people who have had a rotten time or experienced side effects or not quite got the contraception right for them will shout about it and really demonize that form of contraception and it it makes me worried that someone is missing out on their optimal contraceptive form because their favorite social media influencer doesn't like it so what i always say to my patients is that anecdote is not data yeah Everybody knows someone who's tried some form of medicine who didn't like it for whatever reason or it didn't agree with them for whatever reason. But you knowing one or two people, me even knowing 100 patients is not the same as studies involving hundreds of thousands of women. And that's where we need to start with. But also there are sort of messages which have somehow been ingrained, which often aren't quite correct about hormonal contraception. So for example, women will come in and say, my mom says I can't have a call because I haven't had a baby. That's not true. Or my mom says I can't be on the pill because I'm 10 and my periods are so heavy. If you've got periods, then we will help you manage them, whether or not you're eight, nine, 10, 14 or 40. Somehow these messages have got stuck and that we need to unpick them to help people. Yeah. And where should people go for reliable sources of information about contraception that's not their favorite influencer i think it's really important that you know where your information is coming from including on social media because people will use social media and i think that it's always a good place to start with the nhs website or with patient.info where you know that the resources are evidence-based or you go to a doctor that talks about the evidence base not about I don't like this because, or I like this because, and I would always be very cautious of a doctor or anybody that's trying to sell you something. Mm. Doctors are not allowed to promote prescription medications aside from vaccines in a vaccination program. We can promote those, but you won't find like you do in the US, doctors saying, oh, you must take this form of drug, it's better because, so doctors don't do that. But somebody that's trying to sell you something You need to ask very clearly, what is the evidence Mm. behind it? Mm. And I think that when I talk to other media medics, what isn't talked about is what we turn down. Mm. So that I'm approached by brands all the time. And I say, there isn't evidence, no. Mm. And doctors are bound by the GMC duties of a doctor. But if you are another kind of creator, and I'm not belittling them at all, because you can be another kind of creator that has huge value, but you're not necessarily bound by the same rules that Mm. you and I are. And that makes it very difficult. And I think that people are often worried about coming to see me saying, oh, I've printed this off the internet, or I want to show you this. Do you mind? And I always say, no, just you and I are on the same team here. You know, you're trying to find out about your health. And this is what you found. And either I'll, if I know about it, then we'll talk about it together. And if I don't know about it, I'll go and look it up. And that's okay. Your doctor going to wait to look something up and coming back to tell you afterwards. But I would say just really start basic with the NHS website where there is a lot of solid information. And actually the women's health part of that has been updated to try and get stuff which is evidence-based. Yeah, I love that. And on the topic of social media, one of the trendy topics at the moment is this term hormonal imbalance. Yeah. From a woman's health perspective, what is going on 
if a woman thinks that they're suffering with a hormonal imbalance. I feel like I'm sounding like the Grinch today. I'm like, <laughs> there's no such thing as this and there's no such thing as this. I think that as a doctor, hormone imbalance is a thing. If you don't have enough thyroid hormone, you have a condition called hypothyroidism, your hormones are not balanced, your doctor needs to prescribe you some thyroxine. You could even say that diabetes is a hormone imbalance if you are not producing enough insulin and you need to inject insulin. What they're talking about in social media is about women's health and estrogen dominance or progesterone dominance. And when a doctor says that they're not sure whether or not that exists, that doesn't mean that we don't believe you. And that's the bit that often people assume, that if a doctor says there isn't evidence for something called estrogen dominance, that means that they don't believe the patient who's got symptoms. I believe you've got symptoms and we are going to try and find a way of sorting them. But there isn't evidence to suggest that this dominance or this imbalance is causing that. The menstrual cycle hormones are supposed to fluctuate. It is not an imbalance if the first half of your cycle is estrogen heavy. That's what it's supposed to be. And that progesterone rises in the second half or that there are hormones in your brain that do different stuff. It's supposed to do that. Mm. So I'm not convinced that that's an imbalance. Mm. I think that that's just what the symptoms are at that point in your cycle and might be at that point in a different cycle. And where there is a lack of knowledge, we often fill the gap. And that gap is where our vulnerabilities are because when we have symptoms, we want to be better. Mm. And that makes us vulnerable. And so we will try anything and everything, but there isn't the evidence right now. And especially, and I see this a lot around the perimenopause, that people are being prescribed, for example, just progesterone. But actually, HRT, if you have a woman's estrogen and progesterone, and if you don't have a womb, it's just estrogen. And so that there's often some idea or using compounded hormones, which there isn't evidence for either that they work nor that they're safe. And I think some of that is because we don't know enough mm. about the health of women. And so the gap is getting filled with stuff that isn't necessarily correct. But I want to be really clear for people listening who think, well, I think I've got whatever imbalance. I'm not saying that you don't. I'm saying that there's symptoms and that we need to find out what's going on with that and how to help you with that. But that doesn't mean that right now that there's the evidence to suggest that there is an imbalance of the female sex hormones causing it. Mm. Do you think that some women are more sensitive to a particular hormone? So women who suffer with premenstrual syndrome mm. potentially being more sensitive to progesterone in the second phase of the menstrual cycle. Do you think that that could explain why some people suffer with PMS and others don't? So actually it's a breakdown product of progesterone called allopregnanolone, which we think the sensitivity is too. And really interestingly, there are groups of women, there's a medication which potentially is involved with that for PMS. But actually, if you have postnatal depression, we think that one of those groups is really sensitive to it. And one of those groups is sensitive to a lack of it. And there's a lot of research that's being done with regards to that and why you might be more sensitive, be that genetically or for another reason. So yes, I think that some people are more sensitive to it. And in the same way that if we talk about the perimenopause, we talk a lot about the symptoms of the perimenopause, but one out of four women 
won't have symptoms at all. And so there will be women that have marvelous periods, you know, mm. and they literally are that advert skipping and rollerblading down the street. And there are other women who are at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And their reasons as to why are a black box of unknown. Mm. I think for anyone listening that, like you said, feels like they're suffering with a hormonal imbalance, I would really challenge them to not accept hormonal imbalance as the problem. Like you said, there's often a specific reason, whether that is something like polycystic ovarian syndrome, where they may get vague symptoms, rather than just kind of accepting this made up diagnosis of their problem. So PCOS is often something that people say is, is a hormonal imbalance. PCOS is a condition which affects the way the ovaries are working. And there can be hormonal changes related to that. It's the word imbalance that I sort of struggle with because it is so vague and can mean so many different things. And the symptoms of PCOS can be fall lovely into the textbook definition and cannot. And that's, you know, the whole of medicine that it's really great when people follow the rules that were on page 35 of your textbook, but most of the time they don't. So what are those rules? For PCOS? you have to meet various criteria, but you don't have to meet all of them. So for example, you might have to have the appearance of polycystic ovaries on your scan, but you don't have to. And you can have the appearance of polycystic ovaries on your scan, which sort of looks like a little pearl necklace around the edge of the ovary. You can have that and have no hormonal changes. You might have irregular periods or your periods might not be there. You might have symptoms of hyperandrogenism. So essentially that there is too much of testosterone or your body is responding as if there's too much because there's another chemical called sex hormone binding globulin. And so you might have hair where you don't want it. You might have acne. So you might have other symptoms. And then you can have more generalized whole body symptoms, such as weight gain and difficulty losing weight. And that's because PCOS seems to be linked to metabolic syndrome, which is involved in how you control insulin. And there's all these sort of gaps of knowledge in that we know that it seems to be linked with it, but we don't know exactly why. And people with PCOS often come and they say straight away, well, that means I won't be able to have a baby. That's not true. There are lots of treatments. And actually, if you are having regular periods, then often no treatment is needed at all. And I think that having that knowledge is is forewarned. Forewarned is forearmed. That we would say instead of if you're under 35, ordinarily we would say that you don't go to the doctor until you're having regular sex and not being able to conceive for a year. But if I know that you have PCOS, then you would come back at six months. So there's lots of symptoms. There are lots of treatments. There are lots of lifestyle modifications that can be made. But The message is if your normal has changed, if you feel that there is something that has been wrong, go and get that checked out. That's a great message and moves me nicely on to my next question, which is surrounding self-checks and screening. Mm. There is still so many women that don't go and attend their cervical cancer screening Mm. program, their smear test. Do you have any advice to women? Firstly, you know, why this is so important, but do you have any advice to women who are putting off making that appointment, who are fearful of that? Don't. I've had cancer. It's pretty rubbish. Um, I haven't had cervical cancer. I had bowel cancer. And I wish that I would have been picked up at screening. 
I wished that I would have been picked up at a point before my cancer had even developed. And that's what cervical cancer screening does. It stops you getting cervical cancer in the first place. It's not a test for cervical cancer. It is a test for HPV, which is the virus that causes the vast majority of cases of cervical cancer. If HPV is found on your screening test, the lab then looks at the cells that they swipe with a very soft brush from the top of your cervix. And they're looking for precancerous changes, not cancerous mm. changes. And if those precancerous changes are found, they can be treated and stop you getting cancer in the first place. There are lots of reasons why women don't go. And actually, the numbers are pretty dire. The mm. numbers are about that one third of about a third of women don't go for cervical screening. And that's not enough women going because actually we have the potential with the combination of the HPV vaccine and cervical screening to eradicate cervical cancer altogether. That's about 3,000 diagnoses that we will save every single year. Mm. And a diagnosis is not just a diagnosis of cancer, it's treatment and potentially surgery that would remove your womb that would affect fertility or chemotherapy or radiotherapy. It's not just the diagnosis. And then there, the potentially there will be some women who unfortunately die of cervical cancer. People are afraid of the test. The test involves holding the walls of the vagina out of the way and using a very soft brush to take that sample. And there are lots of reasons why women don't go. The shame and stigma around women's health. Women who come to me saying, I'm sorry I didn't shave, I'm sorry I didn't wax, I'm sorry if I smell. Don't think about any of those things. You're not a bunch of roses, you're not supposed to smell like a bunch of roses. And then there are women who have been victims of sexual violence who find it very difficult. Mm. There are women with skin conditions where it is more uncomfortable. Come and tell me. Let's say that you are post-menopause. I could give you some vaginal estrogen for a couple of weeks before to make it more comfortable. You can ask for a smaller speculum. You can ask to put the speculum in yourself to control the speed, which might make it more comfortable for you. you know, there are lots of things that we can do to help because whilst it's not the most pleasant experience, it shouldn't be actively painful mm. and it should be over in a few minutes. And that few minutes could save your life. Go great message thank you for that I know you're also passionate about educating on all things to do with our breast health and you mm. have a wonderful book breasts an owner's guide similarly to cervical cancer screening breast checking mm. still not enough women checking their breasts at home so there is a breast cancer screening program which starts at 50 if you're not at high risk of having breast cancer if you have a very strong positive family history or if you know you have a gene that increases your risk it might start earlier but People often say, well, I've got a mammogram coming up. I don't need to check your breasts. No. Everybody, whatever your age after puberty, whatever your gender, needs to be checking their breasts or their chest every single month. We don't wait for screening to come three years or in 20 years or whatever because breast cancer can strike at any point. There is no right way or wrong way to examine your breasts as long as you are covering the entire breast all the way up to the collarbone and into the armpit as well. And that we want you to know what your breasts feel like. Often it's actually people's partners that find something and then people will come and they're slightly embarrassed and they go, I'm really sorry, my boyfriend found it. So I'm like, okay, found it, someone found it. And we're looking for what's different for you. And we go back to know your normal. It's not abnormal if your breasts feel like a bunch of frozen peas under the skin, if that's what your breasts feel like. It is if your breasts didn't feel like that. It's not abnormal to have inverted nipples. But it is if you didn't have inverted nipples and then one becomes inverted. And the only way you're gonna know 
is if you regularly examine yourself. And often I see women who have just started and they say, I'm not sure, have I found something? Have I not found something? That's okay. The only way to know that is for me to check it out. And if I don't know, then I'm going to refer you on. Mm. I think, again, that reframing that message of we're not looking for cancer, you're checking your breast to get to know your own normal so that if something is slightly different, you notice it. Yep. You No one knows your body like you do. Actually, I've had patients before when I used to work in GP say, can you do the check for me? And it's really important to empower women to, yep. to do it. So when else. people say that, I say, let me teach you how to yeah. do it so that people learn themselves. So how and should we be checking our breasts? So as I said, there's no right or wrong way. There are easier ways, but you know, you find the pattern that works for you. Often we say TLC, touch, look, and get any changes checked. So you need to stand in front of the mirror stripped to the waist. And ideally you would look at your breasts with your hands by your side, your hands up above your head like you're sunbathing, and then your hands on your hips pushing in slightly because that tenses your pecs to bring the breast forward off the chest wall. And you're looking for a change. Maybe an area of skin has become red. If you have black or brown skin, that might look blacker or darker in some way. So often it, it can look almost black and that can be inflammation. So it's important that we're giving information for everybody because mm. redness only looks red on certain skin types. If the skin looks like cellulite or orange peel, and that's a difference for you. If you have a nipple that's pointing in a different direction or is pointing inwards, if the breast shape looks like it's changed, it's normal to have some asymmetry between your two sides. But if one suddenly looks like it looks different in shape, then that's a difference. If you have what we call tethering, that it looks like something's pulling an area in from the inside, like a dimple almost, that needs to be checked out. If you have a rash or an ulcer, or if you have nipple discharge, be that milky or bloody or green, that all needs to be checked out. And then you need to touch and you use the opposite hand to the opposite breast. And I recommend that you use the flat of three fingers and then divide the breast however you like, divide it into four. Imagine that each breast is a clock face and go down from each number to the nipple. You could start in circles like a snail shell from the inside out or from the outside in, as long as you're going all the way up to the collarbone and then into the armpit. And you're looking not just for a lump, but for an area of thickening or an area that feels different. Mm. And if you have periods, we often say to feel after your period because it's the time when your breasts are least likely to be lumpy or tender. And if you don't have periods, then feel on the first, first of every month, it's going to come around. But if you do have periods, whilst feeling after your period is ideal, it would be useful to also know occasionally what it feels like at mm. other points as well. But once a month is totally enough. I see some women that say they do it every day, but yep. actually I think it just fuels anxiety. Yeah, yeah. so every day is definitely too much because your breasts do change throughout your menstrual cycle. They literally are quite astoundingly preparing to breastfeed whether or not you've even thought about having sex, never mind got, got pregnant, never mind got to the end, never mind whether or not you've decided to breastfeed. Mm. Every month they are getting ready. And so there are changes yeah. to them. I don't think that you need to examine every day at no. all once a month. It's fine. And aside from checking our breasts, we've written a whole book on breast health. What other things do we need to be doing to look after our breasts? So breast health is a real example about women's health being, managing being a woman and how breasts 
have an evolutionary purpose, right? So they're there to feed whether or not you choose to feed, but they're also there for sexual attraction and they're there for sexual arousal. And some women can even reach nipple orgasm. So orgasm from stimulating the nipple alone. Lucky them. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a relative cost to that because they hurt. They often hurt. About 80% of women will have nostalgia, so breast pain at some point. They get in the way when you're running, you know, whatever else that you're doing. There can be up to about 20 centimeters of movement when you're running up, down, left, right, round and round, in and out. Like they're not just moving in one direction, they're moving in all directions. And so there's a relative cost to them. And if you have big breasts and heavy breasts, they can lead to back pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, headaches. They can lead to embarrassment. Girls give up sport in their teens. And there are lots of reasons given, but breasts are one of them. And it's not just breast pain. It's embarrassment from breast jiggling and breast movement and the names and whatever else that comes with it and being called. And so there is a cost to that. And I think that there is a lot of work to be done. So for example, when you compare the amount of research done on running shoes versus on sports bras, running shoes wins by a country mile. And even within sports bras, that research is done on elite athletes. Now I'm not an elite athlete, but that doesn't mean that I don't need a sports bra. And there isn't the research done in women who are pregnant because pregnant women are often excluded from trials, right? But we want women to exercise in pregnancy. And we want them to exercise if they're feeding. So we need to do the research on what the changing impact of the changing breast is on exercise. There isn't research for women who've had a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. They've had a breast removed. We need to do that because if your breasts hurt when you run, you don't run. Mm. And the not doing of the sport is not running for me, but you know, what if you're not doing of the sport has a huge impact on your physical and on your mental health. So why aren't we doing more research? And it is just beginning to be done, but why aren't we need so much more into bras that could help that? Mm. Think back to your secondary school days. You had a uniform list, sports bra wasn't on it. No. And if it was on it, I'm not saying that everybody would get a sports bra and bras are expensive and there's a real problem and when you're a teenager and your breasts are developing and you might need to change them really frequently. But if the word sports bra was even on the list, it might prompt people to even consider it. Mm. And that would be a start. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I definitely have sports bras for running, which are different to my gym ones when I'm jumping about and different to my Pilates ones because you're right, many of them are made for like look rather than support. And there is no standardization across any of them. The sizing system is bonkers. And, you know, if your sports bras, the workout is getting your sports bra on. And if your sports bra is so tight and painful, you won't actually do it. And there is lots of stuff to be done as a really simple rule of thumb. The higher the neckline of the sports bra, the more support that it gives. You want a band of your bra, be it sports bra or not sports bra, that is parallel all the way around. It doesn't go up like a sad face. Yeah. You want adjustable straps because I'm five foot tall and you might be six foot tall. I thought you were five foot and a quarter of an inch. Five foot and three quarters of an inch. Someone <laughs> once measured me that. Thank you so much for knowing. <laughs> it was wrong, but you know, thank you for knowing that. But we might have the same size breasts, but the gap between our breast and our shoulder is going to be very different. So you want adjustable straps. Yeah. And the middle of the bra, the central gore, needs to sit flat against your breasts. Nothing else should be in your bra but your breasts. So if you can get in something else, if you can store your phone in there, your bra, your cup size yeah. is too big. And if you've got a quadruple boob, because that's your cup size is digging in. So bra fitting is really important. 
but wearing them can make a difference in sport. I love that. And that's not something people talk about often. So thanks for raising that. I want to just move on to our next question because I'm conscious of time. Menopause, something yeah. you've literally written a book about. It often makes the headlines. And I'm just going to touch on something you said earlier about being kind to women. I think you're right. We give so much slack to teenagers going through puberty and or even sometimes just women on their period, you know, for the hormonal fluctuations and maybe being a bit irritable or whatever other symptoms. But I think we don't give enough slack to women going through the menopause. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about what is actually happening to a woman during menopause and why we need to educate ourselves better on that? Mm. The first thing there is that you just said that we are sometimes kind to women on their periods. And then you use the word hormonal. Hormonal is often a word which is thrown at women in a derogatory way. Mm. Oh, you're just hormonal. Mm. Well, first of all, you can still be angry irrespective of what level your progesterone is. <laughs> if someone does something annoying, you can still get to be annoyed about that. And I think it's a funny term that people often throw at women to mean something bad. Yeah, The menopause is the last period. And that's when you've run out of eggs. There are no more eggs. You are born with all the eggs you are ever going to have. And actually they developed in whilst you were in your mother's womb. And when there are no more eggs, there are no more periods. But it is a diagnosis of retrospect. And we don't say that you've been through the menopause until you have not had a period for 12 months. But just as we have a medical word for your first period, menarche, everybody sort of is aware that puberty is something which takes a period of years. And starting your period is just one point within that. Well, so too in the is the perimenopause, which is a period of years that leads up to that last period. And in the perimenopause, you might be having regular periods, you might be having irregular periods, your periods might get closer together, they might get much more heavy, or they might get lighter. And your hormone levels are doing this, they are literally on a roller coaster going all over the place. And that's why over the age of 45, blood tests aren't the most useful. And we have receptors for estrogen and progesterone from the hair on our head to the skin on our feet, every single body system. And that means that you can get symptoms in every single body system. And yes, one out of four women won't have any symptoms, but of the remaining 75%, about two thirds of them will have symptoms which are manageable. But that means there's about a quarter of women with really, really severe symptoms that are affecting their quality of life to the extent that research has shown that one in 10 women will have thoughts about suicide, wow. which is really significant. Women are leaving their jobs, they're turning down promotions, they, you know, and there's a brain drain, there is an economic cost as well as a physical and psychological mm. cost. The most famous symptom is the hot flush and the sweat, but actually it can be fatigue, insomnia, headaches, migraines, joint aches and pains, dry, itchy skin, changes to your period. Psychologically, it might be low mood, depression, anxiety, worsening PMS, insomnia, fatigue, which can be psychological or physical, loss of libido, and then we need to also think about the long-term consequences of the menopause, increased risk of osteoporosis or genitourinary syndrome of the menopause, sore, painful, itchy vagina, painful sex, recurrent urinary tract infections. There are lots and lots of symptoms. And listing those symptoms is not meant to scare women. It is meant to prepare women. If you don't have them, brilliant. But if you do have them, that somewhere that you read something, or now it's a part of the National Curriculum in secondary school, but it's only been for the last few years, so, you know, there's 
loads of women that don't know, and it's not their fault. But if you knew what those symptoms were, that maybe you would begin to connect the dots mm. and come and ask us for help if you need it. Yeah, and I really struggle with the, again, bad rep that HRT gets because mm. for the women that are suffering with those symptoms you just mentioned, and it's literally affecting every aspect of their life from mm. their work to their physical symptoms to their relationships, that HRT may be literally the saving grace for them. Mm. And then some women see it as like a failure that they've had to take it i think that there were big studies that were done in the late 90s early 2000s and the reporting of the results of those studies and the interpretation of those studies has stuck but you are comparing apples with oranges mm. and so those studies were stopped due to a risk of stroke or risk of breast cancer but what we know now very clearly is that if we give you estrogen through your skin be that a patch of gel or a spray as opposed to orally we can mitigate those risks mm. if you have a womb if we give you progesterone as well as your estrogen we can mitigate the risk of womb cancer so there are lots of ways that we can manipulate how we use the medicines we also know that if you start the medication within 10 years of the menopause that it may be hot protective but in those studies women were having it over 10 years after their menopause. So it's a long period of time without estrogen and then the estrogen comes and then that can cause problems. There is a very small increased risk of breast cancer, but you need to put it into context with things that women are doing. So between the ages of 50 and 59, 23 women out of every thousand will develop breast cancer irrespective of HRT. If you drink and smoke, it's another three or four cases for each of those. If you have obesity, it's an extra 24 cases per thousand. If you take combined HRT, it's an extra four cases per thousand. So those numbers, in comparison to the things that people are doing, mm. are small. If you exercise regularly, it's minus two cases per thousand. So exercise is protective. And people are terrified of HRT, but they're not terrified of alcohol. Yeah. And alcohol is very strongly associated with breast cancer. I think that every woman, it comes down to that risk versus benefit and that we needs to go to the doctor to be informed and have that conversation. But to also know that if you can't have HRT, and it's really important in the menopause space that we don't leave anyone behind. If you can't have HRT or if you don't want to have HRT, that we have other treatments. We have non-hormonal prescribable treatments. That can be effective. Even CBT is effective. And there's been a lot of foray recently about the NICE guidance talking about CBT. But actually, we know that it works. It works for physical symptoms like hot flushes and sweats as much as it works for psychological symptoms. Now, there's an issue about getting hold of it. That's absolutely true. But we do have mm. it as a treatment. And lifestyle factors are hugely important. Exercise reduces all kinds of symptoms not just physical ones, but psychological ones as well. So we have options. And that means that women, what we need to do really importantly is raise awareness so that women come forward to ask for those options. Amazing. I think that's going to be super helpful for lots of people listening. Just to wrap up, we have a little tradition that I'm asking all of my guests. Oh what, God. <laughs> <laughs> what is your vision of health? What does health look like to you? So... Health is more than the absence of disease for me because you can not have a disease and be unhappy. So health is about not just your physical and your psychological health, but also your social health and, you know, and are you lonely and all those kind of things. And often 
there's a big sort of trend about self-care and how you look on social media, self-care is chocolate and a bubble bath. And to me, self-care starts with the absolute basics, which is a roof over your head and food in your belly. And after that, that you take your medicines. That's self-care. If you've prescribed medicines and we've come to a decision together that you need medicines, that's not a failure, that's self-care. And looking after each other and being social, we are pack animals as humans, that is self-care. And if you get to the bubble bath, if the bubble bath is the last tweak for your health, then brilliant. But for many people, we are step steps back looking at what else there is out there, be that taking their medicines or moving their body. And I don't care how you do it. I just care that you do it. You will never find me running a marathon. (laughs) And fueling your body. And no food is to be demonized. and All food has a purpose that we need to be focusing on those things to be health as opposed to minutiae that make people feel bad about themselves mm. as opposed to the things that make them feel good. Lovely. Thank you so much for your time today. That was absolutely amazing. I've learned so much. So I really hope that everyone has taken away lots of great things from that. But thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Vision of Health. I hope you take away some realistic and practical health advice that you can actually incorporate in your busy lives to become the healthiest version of yourself. If you want to hear more from me, then make sure you hit the subscribe button, share this episode, and also go follow me on Instagram, at DrFrankieJS, where I post a regular series of Women's Health Wednesdays with our wonderful sponsors, FemFresh, who you can also catch on socials at FemFresh underscore UK and on their website, FemFresh.co.uk. I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.